Chapter One, Part Two of the Nigger of the Narcissus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Nigger of the Narcissus by Joseph Conrad. Chapter One, Part Two. There was a moment of surprised stillness. Then the forecastle floor disappeared under men whose bare feet flopped on the planks as they sprang clear out of their berths. Caps were rooted for amongst stumbled blankets. Some, yawning, buttoned waistbands. Half-smoked pipes were knocked hurriedly against woodwork and stuffed under pillows. Voices growled, What's up? Is there no rest for us? Donkin yelped. If that's the way of this ship, we'll have to change all that. You leave me alone. I will soon. None of the crowd noticed him. They were lurching in twos and threes through the door, after the manner of merchant jacks who cannot go out of a door fairly, like mere landsmen. The votary of changed followed them. Singleton, struggling into his jacket, came last, tall and fatherly, bearing high his head of a weather-beaten sage on the body of an old athlete. Only Charlie remained alone in the white glare of the empty place, sitting between the two rows of iron links that stretched into the narrow gloom forward. He pulled hard at the strands in a hurried endeavor to finish his knot. Suddenly he started up, flung the rope at the cat, and skipped after the black tom which went off leaping sedately over chain compressors with its tail carried stiff and upright like a small flagpole. Outside the glare of the steaming forecastle, the serene purity of the night enveloped the seamen with its soothing breath, with its tepid breath flowing under the stars that hung countless above the mastheads in a thin cloud of luminous dust. On the town side, the blackness of the water was streaked with trails of light which undulated gently on slight ripples, similar to filaments that float rooted to the shore. Rows of other lights stood away in straight lines as if drawn up on parade between towering buildings, but on the other side of the harbor somber hills arched high their black spines, on which, here and there, the point of a star resembled a spark fallen from the sky. Far off, by coal away, the electric lamps at the dock gates shone on the end of lofty standards, with a glow blinding and frigid like captive ghosts of some evil moons. Scattered all over the dark polish of the roadstead, the ships at anchor floated in perfect stillness under the feeble gleam of their riding lights, looming up, opaque and bulky, like strange and monumental structures abandoned by men to an everlasting repose. Before the cabin door, Mr. Baker was mustering the crew. As they stumbled and lurched along past the mainmast, they could see aft his round, broad face with a white paper before it, and beside his shoulder the sleepy head, with dropped eyelids, of a boy, who held, suspended at the end of his raised arm, the luminous globe of a lamp. Even before the shuffle of naked souls had ceased along the decks, the mate began to call over the names. He called distinctly, in a serious tone, befitting this roll-call to unquiet loneliness, to inglorious and obscure struggle, or to the more trying endurance of small privations and wearisome duties. As the mate read out a name, one of the men would answer, Yes, sir, or here, and detaching himself from the shadowy mob of heads visible above the blackness of starboard bulwarks, 
would step barefooted into the circle of light and in two noiseless strides pass into the shadows of the port side of the quarter-deck they answered in diverse tones in thick mutters in clear ringing voices and some as if the whole thing had been an outrage on their feelings used an injured intonation for discipline is not ceremonious in merchant ships where the sense of hierarchy is weak and where all feel themselves equal before the unconcerned immensity of the sea and the exacting appeal of the work mr baker read on steadily hansen campbell smith wamibo now then wamibo why don't you answer always got to call your name twice the finn emitted at last an uncouth grunt and stepping out passed through the patch of light weird and gaunty with the face of a man marching through a dream the mate went on faster crake singleton donkin oh lord he involuntarily ejaculated as the incredibly dilapidated figure appeared in the light it stopped it uncovered pale gums and long upper teeth in a malevolent grin is there any taint wrong with me mr mate it asked with a flavour of insolence in the forced simplicity of its tone on both sides of the deck subdued titters were heard that'll do go over growled mr baker fixing the new hand with steady blue eyes and duncan vanished suddenly out of the light into the dark group of mustard men to be slapped on the back and to hear flattering whispers he ain't afeard he'll give sport to em see if he don't regular punch and judy show did you see the mate started him well damn if i ever the last man had gone over and there was a moment of silence while the mate peered at his list sixteen seventeen he muttered i am one hand short bosun he said aloud the big west countryman at his elbow swarthy and bearded like a gigantic spaniard said in a rumbling bass there's no one left forward sir i had a look round he ain't aboard but he may turn up before daylight ay he may or he may not commented the mate can't make out the last name it's all a smudge that will do men go below the distinct and motionless group stirred broke up and began to move forward wait called a deep ringing voice all stood still mr baker who had turned away yawning spun round open-mouthed at last furious he blurted out what's this who said wait what but he saw a tall figure standing on the rail it came down and pushed through the crowd marching with a heavy tread towards the light on the quarter-deck then again the sonorous voice said with insistence wait the lamplight lit up the man's body he was tall his head was away up in the shadows of lifeboats that stood on skids above the deck the whites of his eyes and his teeth gleamed distinctly but the face was indistinguishable his hands were big and seemed gloved mr baker advanced intrepidly who are you how dare you he began the boy amazed like the rest raised the light to the man's face it was black a surprised hum a faint hum that sounded like the suppressed mutter of the word nigger ran along the deck and escaped out into the night the nigger seemed not to hear he balanced himself where he stood with a swagger that marked time after a while he said calmly my name is wait james wait 
Oh, said Mr. Baker. Then, after a few seconds of smouldering silence, his temper blazed out. Ah, your name is Wait. What of that? What do you want? What do you mean coming shouting here? The nigger was calm, cool, towering, superb. The men had approached and stood behind him in a body. He overtopped the tallest by half a head. He said, I belong to the ship. He enunciated distinctly, with soft precision. The deep, rolling tones of his voice filled the deck without effort. He was naturally scornful, unaffectedly condescending, as if from his height of six foot three he had surveyed all the vastness of human folly and had made up his mind not to be too hard on it. He went on, The captain shipped me this morning. I couldn't get aboard sooner. I saw you all aft as I came up the ladder, and could see directly you were mustering the crew. Naturally, I called out my name. I thought you had it on your list and would understand. You misapprehended. He stopped short. The folly around him was confounded. He was right as ever, and as ever ready to forgive. The disdainful tones had ceased, and breathing heavily, he stood still, surrounded by all these white men. He held his head up in the glare of the lamp, a head vigorously modelled into deep shadows and shining lights, a head powerful and misshapen with a tormented and flattened face, a face pathetic and brutal, the tragic, the mysterious, the repulsive mask of a nigger's soul. Mr. Baker, recovering his composure, looked at the paper close. Oh, yes, that's so. All right, wait. Take your gear forward, he said. Suddenly the nigger's eyes rolled wildly, became all whites. He put his hand to his side and coughed twice, a cough metallic, hollow, and tremendously loud. It resounded like two explosions in a vault. The dome of the sky rang to it, and the iron plates of the ship's bulwarks seemed to vibrate in unison. Then he marched off forward with the others. The officers lingering by the cabin door could hear him say, won't some of you chaps lend a hand with my dunnage? I've got a chest and a bag. The words, spoken sonorously, with an even intonation, were heard all over the ship, and the question was put in a manner that made refusal impossible. The short, quick shuffle of men carrying something heavy went away forward, but the tall figure of the nigger lingered by the main hatch in a knot of smaller shapes. Again he was heard asking, is your cook a colored gentleman? Then a disappointed and disapproving, ah, <clears throat> was his comment upon the information that the cook happened to be a mere white man. Yet, as they went all together towards the forecastle, condescended to put his head through the galley door and boom out inside a magnificent, Good evening, doctor, that made all the saucepans ring. In the dim light the cook dozed on the coal locker in front of the captain's supper. He jumped up as if he had been cut with a whip, and dashed wildly on deck to see the backs of several men going away laughing. Afterwards, when talking about that voyage, he used to say, The poor fellow had scared me. I thought I had seen the devil. The cook had been seven years in the ship with the same captain. He was a serious-minded man with a wife and three children, whose society he enjoyed on average one month out of twelve. When on shore, he took his family to church twice every Sunday. At sea, he went to sleep every evening with his lamp turned up full, 
a pipe in his mouth, and an open Bible in his hand. Someone had always to go during the night to put out the light, take the book from his hand, and the pipe from between his teeth. For, Belfast used to say, irritated and complaining, some night, you stupid cookie, you'll swallow your owled clay, and we will have no cook. Ah, Sonny, I am ready for my maker's call. Wish you all were, the other would answer with a benign serenity that was altogether imbecile and touching. Belfast outside the galley door danced with vexation. You holy fool, I don't want you to die, he howled, looking up with furious quivering face and tender eyes. What's the hurry? You blessed wooden-headed old heretic, the devil will have you soon enough. Think of us, of us, of us. And he would go away stamping, spitting aside, disgusted and worried, while the other, stepping out, saucepan in hand, hot, begrimed and placid, watched with a superior cocksure smile the back of his queer little man reeling in a rage. They were great friends. Mr. Baker, lounging over the after-hatch, sniffed the humid air in the company of the second mate. Those West India niggers run fine and large, some of them. Och! Don't they? A fine big man, that, Mr. Crichton. Feel him on a rope. Hey? Och! I will take him into my watch, I think. The second mate, a fair, gentlemanly young fellow, with a resolute face and a splendid physique, observed quietly that it was just about what he expected. There could be felt in his tone some slight bitterness, which Mr. Baker very kindly set himself to argue away. "'Come, come, young man,' he said, grunting between the words. "'Come, don't be too greedy. You had that big fin in your watch all the voyage.' I will do what's fair. You may have those two young Scandinavians, and I... Hawk! I get the nigger, and we'll take that... Hawk! That cheeky costermonger chap in a black frock coat. I'll make him... Hawk! Make him toe the mark, or my... <coughs> name isn't Baker. Hawk! 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 He grunted thrice, ferociously. He had that trick of grunting so between his words and at the end of his sentences. It was a fine, effective grunt that went well with his menacing utterance, with his heavy, bull-necked frame, his jerky, rolling gait, with his big, seamed face, his steady eyes, and sardonic mouth. But its effect had been long ago discounted by the men. They liked him. Belfast, who was a favorite and knew it, mimicked him, not quite behind his back. Charlie, but with greater caution, imitated his rolling gait. Some of his sayings became established daily quotations in the forecastle. Popularity could go no farther. Besides, all hands were ready to admit that on a fitting occasion the mate could jump down a fellow's throat in a regular Western Ocean style. Now he was giving his last orders. Hawk, you, Knowles, call all hands at four. I want, Hawk, to heave short before the tug comes. Look out for the captain. I am going to lie down in my clothes. Hawk, call me when you see the boat coming. Hawk, The old man is sure to have something to say when he gets aboard, he remarked to Crichton. Well, good night. Hawk, 
A long day before us tomorrow. Ach! Better turn in now. Ach! Ach! Upon the dark deck a band of light flashed, then a door slammed, and Mr. Baker was gone into his neat cabin. Young Crichton stood leaning over the rail, and looked dreamily into the night of the east. And he saw in it a long country lane, a lane of waving leaves and dancing sunshine. He saw stirring boughs of old trees outspread, and framing in their arch the tender, the caressing blueness of an English sky and through the arch a girl in a light dress smiling under a sunshade seemed to be stepping out of the tender sky at the other end of the ship the forecastle with only one lamp burning now was going to sleep in a dim emptiness traversed by loud breathings by sudden short sighs the double row of berths yawned black like graves tenanted by uneasy corpses here and there a curtain of gaudy chintz, half-drawn, marked the resting-place of a sybarite. A leg hung over the edge very white and lifeless. An arm stuck straight out with the dark palm turned up and thick fingers half-closed. Two light snores that did not synchronize quarreled in funny dialogue. Singleton stripped again. The old man suffered much from prickly heat stood cooling his back in the doorway with his arms crossed on his bare and adorned chest his head touched the beam of the deck above the nigger half undressed was busy casting adrift the lashing of his box and spreading his bedding in an upper berth he moved about in his socks tall and noiseless with a pair of braces beating about his calves amongst the shadows of stanchions and bowsprit Duncan munched a piece of hard ship's bread, sitting on the deck with upturned feet and restless eyes. He held the biscuit up before his mouth in the whole fist and snapped his jaws at it with a raging face. Crumbs fell between his outspread legs. Then he got up. "'Where's our water-cask?' he asked in a contained voice. Singleton, without a word, pointed with a big hand that held a short, smouldering pipe. Duncan bent over the cask drank out of the tin, splashing the water, turned round and noticed the nigger looking at him over the shoulder with calm loftiness. He moved up sideways. "'There's a bloomin' supper for a man,' he whispered bitterly. "'My dog at home wouldn't have it. It's fit enough for you and me. Here's a big ship's forecastle, not a bloomin' scrap of meat in the kids. I've looked in all the lockers.' The nigger stared like a man addressed unexpectedly in a foreign language. Duncan changed his tone. "'Give us a bit of backy, mate,' he breathed out confidentially. "'I haven't had smoke or chew for the last month. I am rampin' mad for it. Come on, old man.' "'Don't be familiar,' said the nigger. Duncan started and sat down on a chest nearby out of sheer surprise. "'We haven't kept pigs together,' continued James Waite in a deep undertone. "'Here's your tobacco.' Then, after a pause, he inquired, "'What ship?' "'Golden State,' muttered Duncan indistinctly, biting the tobacco. The nigger whistled low. "'Ran?' he said curtly. Duncan nodded. One of his cheeks bulged out. "'In course I ran,' he mumbled. They booted the life out of one dago chap on the passage here, then started on me. I cleared out here. Left your dunnage behind? 
yes dunnage and money answered donkin raising his voice a little i got nothink no clothes no bed a bandy-legged little hirish chap ere as give me a blanket think i'll go and sleep in the fore-topmast staysail to-night he went on deck trailing behind his back a corner of the blanket singleton without a glance moved slightly aside to let him pass the nigger put away his shore togs and sat in clean working clothes on his box one arm stretched over his knees after staring at singleton for some time he asked without emphasis what kind of ship is this pretty fair eh singleton didn't stir after a long while he said with unmoved face ship ships are all right it is the men in them he went on smoking in profound silence the wisdom of half a century spent in listening to the thunder of waves had spoken unconsciously through his old lips the cat purred on the windlass then james wait had a fit of roaring rattling cough that shook him tossed him like a hurricane and flung him panning with staring eyes headlong on his sea chest several men woke up one said sleepily out of his bunk shrewth what a blamed row i have a cold in my chest gasped wait cold do you call it grumbled the man should think twas something more oh you think so said the nigger upright and loftily scornful again he climbed into his berth and began coughing persistently while he put his head out to glare all round the forecastle. there was no further protest he fell back on the pillow and could be heard there wheezing regularly like a man oppressed in his sleep singleton stood at the door with his face to the light and his back to the darkness and alone in the dim emptiness of the sleeping forecastle, he appeared bigger colossal very old old as father time himself who should have come there into this place as quiet as a sepulchre to contemplate with patient eyes the short victory of sleep the consoler yet he was only a child of time a lonely relic of a devoured and forgotten generation he stood still strong as ever unthinking a ready man with a vast empty past and with no future with his childlike impulses and his man's passions already dead within his tattooed breast the men who could understand his silence were gone those men who knew how to exist beyond the pale of life and within sight of eternity they had been strong as those are strong who know neither doubt nor hopes they had been impatient and enduring turbulent and devoted unruly and faithful well-meaning people had tried to represent these men as whining over every mouthful of their food as going about their work in fear of their lives but in truth they had been men who knew toil privation violence debauchery but knew not fear and had no desire of spite in their hearts men hard to manage but easy to inspire voiceless men but men enough to scorn in their hearts the sentimental voices that bewailed the hardness of their fate it was a fate unique and their own the capacity to bear it appeared to them the privilege of the chosen their generation lived inarticulate and indispensable without knowing the sweetness of affections or the refuge of a home and died free from the dark menace of a narrow grave 
They were the everlasting children of the mysterious sea. Their successors are the grown-up children of a discontented earth. They are less naughty, but less innocent, less profane, but perhaps also less believing, and if they have learned how to speak, they have also learned how to whine. But the others were strong and mute. They were effaced, bowed, and enduring, like stone caryatides that hold up in the night the lighted halls of a resplendent and glorious edifice. They are gone now, and it does not matter. The sea and the earth are unfaithful to their children, a truth, a faith, a generation of men goes, and is forgotten, and it does not matter. Except, perhaps, to the few of those who believed the truth, confessed the faith, or loved the men. A breeze was coming. The ship that had been laying tide road swung to a heavier puff, and suddenly the slack of the chain cable between the windlass and the hosepipe clinked, slipped forward an inch, and rose gently off the deck with a startling suggestion as of unsuspected life that had been lurking stealthily in the iron. In the hosepipe, the grinding link sent through the ship a sound like a low groan of a man sighing under a burden. The strain came on the windlass, the chain tautened like a string, vibrated, and the handle of the screw brake moved in slight jerks. Singleton stepped forward. Till then he had been standing meditative and unthinking, reposeful and hopeless, with a face grim and blank, a sixty-year-old child of the mysterious sea. The thoughts of all his lifetime could have been expressed in six words, but the stir of those things that were as much part of his existence as his beating heart called up a gleam of alert understanding under the sternness of his aged face. The flame of the lamp swayed, and the old man, with knitted and bushy eyebrows, stood over the break, watchful and motionless in the wild saraband of dancing shadows. Then the ship, obedient to the call of her anchor, forged ahead slightly and eased the strain. The cable relieved, hung down, and after swaying imperceptibly to and fro, dropped with a loud tap on the hardwood planks. Singleton seized the high lever and, by a violent throw forward of his body, wrung out another half-turn from the brake. He recovered himself breathed largely, and remained for a while glaring down at the powerful and compact engine that squatted on the deck at his feet like some quiet monster. A creature amazing and tame. You hold, he growled at it masterfully in the incult tangle of his white beard. End of chapter 1